You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 11, episode seven. I've long been fascinated with how a lot of earlier Christian art in the West, particularly in the Byzantine and medieval periods, used abstraction as a way of announcing to the viewer that you were looking at something that was other, that you were looking at something that was transcendent. Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Whitebro is assistant professor of art and art history at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Her research and writing consider representations of race and gender in 19th and 20th century art and visual culture. But she's most passionate about equipping lay people to engage generatively with the images they already see. In this episode, Dr. Whitebroke and I discuss her book, Redeeming Vision, a Christian guide to looking at and learning from art, which at the time of this recording was just released from Baker Academic. In our conversation, we talk about how we might engage with art that makes us uncomfortable, challenges us, or takes us outside our familiar ways of seeing. One of the chapters in Redeeming Vision is titled Wondering at God's Transcendence. And of course, Given our theme for this season, I couldn't resist spending some time unpacking this chapter specifically. You can visit our Instagram at Makers and Mystics to see images of the paintings we discuss in this episode. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I have been reading your book this week and enjoying it thoroughly. And so I can't wait to talk about redeeming vision. But before we get into the book, I'd love to get to know you a bit. If you could just tell me some about your background, the work that you're doing within visual arts and the way that this relationship between art and faith works out in your life. Yeah, so I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, in a Christian biracial home. My mom is Japanese American, my dad is white. I attended Covenant College, where I now work as a professor. I I attended the school as an undergraduate as well. Um, And then I got my degree in interdisciplinary studies, art, English, and education. So always really interested in the relationship between art and sort of other disciplines, between art and faith. And then after graduating, I moved to St. Louis. I got my master's and my PhD from Washington University in St. Louis. And there, my research and writing really focused on modern and contemporary art, especially art that explored the body and identity. My husband likes to joke that I study the art that you don't like. Uh, so, <laughs> But I, I did so because I thought that there was so much for Christians to learn from modern and contemporary art. And I really wanted to be a sort of translator between the world of modern and contemporary art history and the church. So now I'm back at Covenant College as an associate professor of art and art history. Um, I get to teach all of the art history at my small institution, but uh, I teach things like history and theory of photography, global modernisms, art in the church, women, art and culture, and a thread that runs through all of my teaching and my scholarship and my writing for lay audiences is just the idea of a loving look. I'm, I'm very compelled by how looking, 
to love um, or looking that is oriented in love can help us be more self-reflective, how it can be transformational and can grow relationships between each other. Well, I know just from doing some study on your work that this idea of the way we see or even learning to look, like you said, with those eyes of love is a huge thread through a lot of your work. I'd love to hear you elaborate on that a little more. Tell us about how we can learn to look well in regards to art. Yeah. So you know, sometimes I have a, a student who's not an art major who takes my introduction to art history class and they'll come and they'll be really nervous and, and they'll say something like, I'm not, I'm not artsy, so I don't <laughs> think I can do this. <laughs> and I, I try to allay their fears right away and, and sort of let them know that they are kind of already doing art history because we live in such a visual culture. We live in a world that is permeated with images. And so they are already making judgments. They are doing interpretation of things that they see every day. And I just want them to be able to do that better and to be able to do that in a way that is productive you know, I, I think in some sense, we're all being catechized by images. We're being formed by the images that we see. Images teach us what is, not just what is beautiful, but what power looks like, what morality looks like, and also the inverse. Who are the people that we can despise? Who are the people that we can distance ourselves from? And so images are, are playing a big role already in how we conceive of God and our neighbor and then how we love them. So what I'm really interested in is if we're already being formed by images, then how can we, how can we be an active agent in that rather than just being sort of passively formed? What can we do with the things that we're seeing? And particularly you know, something that's been really interesting to me is, is how looking at artworks that are from cultures that are unfamiliar to us or that tell stories that might not be our own story, how those can really, by engaging our whole body, um, by opening up this sort of embody kind of knowledge, how can those then be entry points for empathy? How can those be entry points for growing in love for each other in ways that we maybe didn't even have the, the capacity to imagine before we encountered that thing? Well, you know, it's interesting you were talking about modern art and this really interests me because I've studied a lot of Hans Ruckmacher and a lot of these brilliant scholars and thinkers throughout history, but not many of them that I found had a very positive view on modern art yeah. or <laughs> abstract art even. And so mm -hmm. in some ways it kind of feels like there could be a stunted approach to modern art when it comes to people of faith speaking into that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, I read Hans Ruckmacher's uh, Modern Art and the Death of the Culture early on when I was maybe a, f a freshman in college and sort of sent me into a little bit of a spiral because I, <laughs> I wasn't sure what to do with this approach to thinking that if an artist had a flawed worldview, then their art must also necessarily be an illustration of that flawed worldview or flawed in some way and could therefore serve as a perhaps a kind of warning for us as a Christian. But that was about it, that we mm. had to be really cautious uh, sort of interacting with, with modern and certainly with contemporary art. 
And modern and contemporary art encompasses a whole range of things. As you mentioned, much of the abstract art is certainly a big part of modernism. Um, but this is also just art that maybe engages with certain topics or that rejects kind of the conventions of the academy, the conventions of um, aesthetic principles that have been taken for granted in the West. So there, there is certainly a lot of rejection that is happening in, in modern and contemporary art. What I found helpful um, looking at some of these artworks, if I approach these artworks from a position of humility and curiosity and love, I can critique what the artist perhaps believed about himself or herself and the world. But I might also be able to use the artwork as a mirror for some of my own fears, for some of my own places of perhaps even mistrust in God. I'm thinking in particular of the work of Paul Gauguin, a French post-impressionist painter who goes to Tahiti and paints these uh, sort of stylized, flattened paintings of Tahitian women on the beaches. And for him, this is this primitivist vision of, uh, of a land that has been untouched by modernity. And there are a lot of people who have a lot of problems <laughs> with what Gauguin does. And even right now, the, the temptation in contemporary culture would be to sort of cancel Gauguin, to say, that was gross, what you did. That was colonialism. Um, and to not want to look or not want to engage with his paintings anymore. And I suppose what I'm most interested in is, is as a person of faith who believes that I work from the abundance of a spirit, um, the promise of God that he is going to come back and to restore this creation that he calls good, if I'm working from that place of abundance, then I can look at Gauguin and I can be unafraid to see the ways that I am maybe like Gauguin. Mm. Right? What, are the, what are the ways that I might sort of drop myself into an unfamiliar culture and think that I know everything? What are the ways that I might try to flatten somebody else out into a kind of caricature of who they actually are? Because it's easier for me to consume them in that way. And once I do that, I'm not, I'm not elevating Gauguin as the kind of artist I want to be or that I want my students to be, but I'm learning from Gauguin rather than just learning about him or rather than dismissing his work out of hand as if there is nothing beneficial for us to gain from it. It's like the way we approach a work of art largely determines what we are able to receive from a particular work of art. And yes. I, I love what you were saying about the love and the humility almost allowing us to transform what could be judgment or cancel mm -hmm. into self-reflection. Yes. And I think this is so important. I was just talking with Father Christopher Foley. He's an Orthodox priest, and we had a conversation where he was talking about Sufjan Stevens' song, John Wayne Gacy Jr., and just how dark and disturbing the lyrics of this song are, but yet even in it, it begins to ask the question, what in my own heart is of this same dark, broken, or fallen nature? Yes, exactly. And, and that's why in the book we 
don't only look at examples of quote unquote high art, Mm -hmm. that we're also looking at examples from mass culture, you know, something like a a documentary photography or photographs of of a Navajo boy who's sent to a federal boarding school. Um, We're looking at things that are not aesthetically pleasing always. We're looking at things that are not morally pleasing always and asking ourselves, what can I do with this? How can my looking be generative? How can my looking be productive in some way? It's almost like art is meant to impact the audience through a much broader lens than just aesthetic enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And if our only paradigm for engaging art is to be pleased or delighted, which that's great. I love art that makes me feel good. You know, I love (laughs) songs that make me feel good. Nothing wrong with that. But I think the danger, especially for those, for people of faith, it can be that we only engage with things that become an echo chamber. And so rather than learning, even from things that are contrary to our own worldview, we dismiss those things. And then as you you just so beautifully articulated, we might miss a bit of self-reflection that that could help us grow if we learned how to look a bit differently. Right, exactly. And and you know the the psalms are really what provide a model for us of the the breadth of response that uh, something made by humans can evoke, right? So we have all of these psalms that are intended to invite us into doxology, that are intended to invite us into praise. But there are also psalms that are telling history. Uh, There are psalms that are confession. There are psalms that are lament and that end in lament. And so there, there really is this freedom, I think, for us as Christians to consider all of the different ways that we might respond uh, and, and grow our love for God and for our neighbor in the process. Well, you brought up your book. And so I'd love to dive into this a bit. I'm holding this in my hand. <laughs> and I believe I may have one of the first copies ever. That's <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'll have authors on the show and I have their book before they even have their own copy, you know. <laughs> The title of your book is Redeeming Vision, A Christian Guide to Looking at and Learning from Art. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little about what you would hope that the readers would take away from this book in their own life and experience of art. I would hope that after reading this book, that someone would be able to certainly go to an art museum and to feel like they could do something there <laughs> that is delightful, that is uh, that pushes them a little bit further than what they maybe felt confident doing before. I hope this is a book that empowers people in that way. Um, I hope that it, this is a book that when someone encounters an artwork or even an image from popular culture that they don't like, that they have an initial negative reaction to, that this book has equipped them with tools to slow down a little bit and to ask themselves, why don't I like that? And what might I learn from the gap between what I was expecting and what I'm seeing instead? Uh, I I hope that it would encourage people to look more, to to seek out additional images 
at the end of every chapter, I have suggestions for further looking um, if people want to, to keep exploring a little bit further. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the approach that you take with art because it calls people of faith out of their comfort zones or out of familiar ways of looking at art. Mm-hmm. And it enables them to engage the current cultural conversations around art and to contribute a much needed perspective to those conversations, would you say? I hope so. That is the goal here that you get out of the things that just feel easy or that feel default and that you are able to see how you can learn from something that perhaps initially rubs you the wrong way and and understand why there's so much value to be gained in that kind of self-reflection. And again, as, as Christians, a freedom that we have to not be afraid of what we might find. Yes. I think that's such an important posture for this time. It's almost countercultural, you know, in a time where we see so much division, so much divisiveness, so many camps, you know, are you part of this camp? Are you part of this camp? And I know the artist in me reels at that type of mindset, you know, and, and this really does come at our cultural moment with a fresh lens, no pun intended there, (laughs) but (laughs) it really does come at the cultural moment with a fresh lens of how instead of running away from the things that might be uncomfortable, how can we engage them in such a way that it helps us grow? Right, exactly. And I'll I'll give your listeners a little bit of a sneak peek at the, the end of the book. The last artwork that I talk about is an installation by the Colombian artist Dora Salcedo. It's called Shibboleth, and it is literally a crack in the floor of the Tate Modern in London. And what I love about this crack is that instead, some people didn't like the crack. Some people tripped on it. If they tried to ignore it, they would get hurt. Some people thought this isn't art. But the vast majority of people ended up actually getting on their hands and knees and investigating the crack. So Mm. there's this rupture. And instead of running away, folks saw it as an invitation to understand that rupture better. And so they walked up and down the length of it. They held hands over it. They jumped. They've stuck their heads inside of it. They drew it. And it's just this really beautiful sort of representation or, or, or actualization of what happens when we are generous when we approach a rupture with love rather than with fear. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Even philosophically, that just makes me excited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk to you about a particular chapter in this book because it dovetails so beautifully into the conversation we're having on the podcast this season. And it's your chapter on wondering at God's transcendence. Hmm. Talk to us about this particular chapter. So this chapter uh, is a way of exploring abstraction as a visual language, but also thinking about that in relationship to God's transcendence. I think often when we think about abstract art, it feels really distant from us. It feels like something that's very other. And I've long been fascinated with how a lot of earlier Christian art in the West, particularly in the Byzantine and medieval periods, 
used abstraction as a way of announcing to the viewer that you were looking at something that was other, that you were looking at something that was transcendent. So I really wanted to bring together two different artworks, a mosaic tile ceiling uh, in a 10th century church and a painting by uh, the artist Vasily Kandinsky that's total abstraction. It's a a non-objective painting. And think about how those things together were perhaps doing something similar and how they remind us of a God who is transcendent, but who still deigns to interact with us and who still allows us to use our bodies to enter into something that might feel other. I'd love to know how these particular paintings and really how visual art in general can lead a viewer to this experience of the transcendent. You know, how can we get an idea or a feeling or have an encounter with the transcendent through image and color? How does that work? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? (laughs) Right. There is something that is so beautiful, so mysterious about who we are as image bearers of God, that we are enfleshed souls, that we are creatures, and yet we are creatures who are miraculously somehow tethered to something that is beyond us, to something that cannot be fully comprehended by us. And perhaps sometimes that can be a little bit frightening to think that there is this big God out there that is uh, incomprehensible in some ways, that that is so different from us. And other times it might be thrilling to think about that. I I think there's a, a whole range of emotions that we might have. And art, particularly abstract art, where you look at this Kandinsky and you can hear sound. You know, you look at, I see something different in this painting every time that I encounter it. The fact that just paint on a canvas can sort of make this vibration happen in my chest is just every time so spectacular. (laughs) Yes. Walking into a space like the San Zeno Chapel makes me want to cry because it is so beautiful and it is so unlike my everyday. You know, it is, it is so foreign to my kitchen. It is so foreign to um, American architecture even in some ways. So both of these artworks do that thing that art can do where it sort of hits a chord, it plucks a string deep inside of us and it reminds us that we're made for something more, right? It reminds us that this world is not all that there is. Mm-hmm. And yet what I find to be so beautiful again about art is that even as it calls our attention to something that is beyond the material it does so through the material and it does so through our bodies and so both the Kandinsky and the Sanzino Chapel are not asking us to leave our bodies behind they create that connection through 
our senses, right? Like we want to get close to the Kandinsky painting. We want to, our, our necks hurt from craning up looking at the ceiling of the San Zeno Chapel. When you move through the San Zeno Chapel, the walls start to glitter because the light is coming in and it's hitting, it's refracting off of all of these mosaic tiles in different ways. When you stand in front of a Kandinsky and you step back from it, something different happens than when you step close to it. Mm. And so we get to encounter something that is so other through something that is so familiar, our bodies. Yes, I love that so much. You know, and it's come up on several conversations this season on the podcast, but this idea that art is incarnational. And, you know, and you even talk about it in the book, the theosophical philosophy that kind of brought forth the idea that we are entrapped Mm -hmm. in the material and that, you know, the goal is to transcend out of that or to leave it behind. Mm -hmm. But these ideas, and I would say even the Christian idea of transcendence, really involves this embodiment that we've been talking about and this experience through the senses. And even at the end of the chapter, which maybe we can get into in a few minutes, you draw some distinctions between even more of a Christian view of transcendence as opposed to some other philosophical viewpoints on transcendence. Mm -hmm. I love the idea that it is through the senses that we can encounter the transcendent and that we don't have to consider the body unholy or leave yes. the body behind, but quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and this is the, the arc of the Christian story, right? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, restoration, yes. that God creates this material world and he calls it good. And yes, there's brokenness. Yes, there is the fall. But through the incarnation of Christ, this material world is reminded of its dignity, the things that we do with our hands, the way that we are in time and place and space are given dignity by Christ's incarnation. And then the fact that he promises to come again to restore Mm -hmm. this world, that this is not a story that ends with the obliteration of the material, but the restoration of the material. And I love that Kandinsky who's brought up in the Orthodox Church, has this sense of the apocalypse is not an erasure. The apocalypse is a new creation, and that shows up in his painting. Yes, that's so good. From your book here, you said, our redeeming vision is embodied vision, grounded in this world. And yet through the use of emotive color and line and his evocation of sound, Kandinsky also opens us up to a reality beyond what we can see. Mm -hmm. That right there is at the heart of why I believe that building these bridges, these conversations between art and faith are so important because Mm -hmm. it, it really is part of the incarnation. And I also believe part of that restorative mission, if you will, that you're talking about, you know, within that's baked into the DNA of the Christian faith. It's that Mm -hmm. it's, it's through the body, it's through the senses, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, I start the chapter out by, by talking about Isaiah and these descriptions of who God is and how other he is from us but pointing out in Isaiah 40 that 
every time Isaiah talks about this God who is beyond us, this God who is above all, that he's also connects it to something of God's imminence, right? That this is also the God who gathers the lamb in his arms. And that tension, that reality, uh, that doubled reality is what I find so compelling about our faith and and a driving force and commitment for everything that we do in the arts. Yes, so beautiful. Well, talk to me a few minutes about the further looking that you have at the end of this chapter, because it made me want to go study all these things that, <laughs> that you presented. But you talk about transcendence and religion, and you said the notion of transcendence plays different roles in different religions. And you talk about Buddhism, Hinduism, and uh, these different philosophies of transcendence. I believe we've already been talking about it, but I'd love for you to point it out specifically. Is this tension between the imminent and the transcendent what you find to be a unique approach to transcendence within religion in general? I do. I, I think that the incarnation, the restoration by this God who is above all, who is beyond all, a God who enters into time and place and takes on flesh, that is what makes the Christian faith unique, that we are not trying to escape this reality, but we are groaning and begging for this reality to be restored, right? That and and that we are tasting little bits of that in the sacraments, that we're tasting little bits of that in the things that we make, in the things that we get to um, experience that others have made. I, I do think that that is something that differentiates Christianity from Buddhism, that differentiates Christianity from Hinduism. There are a number of modern and contemporary artists who are influenced by Buddhism, by theosophy, by some other worldviews or religions where they anticipate that their art is this sort of escape or entrance into a void. There's been lots of conversations about, you know, what exactly is Mark Rothko wanting us to do? What exactly <laughs> is Agnes Martin wanting us to do? But when I have gone to the Rothko Chapel in Houston, that is this ecumenical, it's a, an interfaith space. It's not supposed to be prescriptive in some way. And they have all of these different religious texts that you can choose from before you enter into the space. But when I get really close to one of these Rothko paintings and I stare at it and I stare into this inky wine-colored haze that he's painted... I'm really struck by how the painting starts to seem to breathe. I, mm. I I feel like the painting starts to swell and then it exhales right in front of me. And I can't completely explain it. I know that there's something going on with, you know, the cones in my eyes and with neuroreceptors <laughs> and all those things. But fundamentally, I am still, I'm getting that taste of, the physical and the spiritual intertwined together, that in that materiality and in my body, I still know that I am made for something more and something that is going to be restored. The same mm -hmm. with somebody like Bill Viola or James Terrell, artists who are making these immersive installation works that in a lot of ways are taking their cues 
from religious spaces, but mm. rather than orienting themselves towards a God, it's or, they tend to orient themselves towards the notion of transcendence or this desire for some sort of escape from the mundane. Yeah. And we don't, I, I know I keep saying this, but we don't need to escape from the mundane because Jesus came and met us here. God came and met us in our mundane. Another thing that I've been meditating on this season is this differentiation between transcendence and escapism. Mm -hmm. And I think that mm -hmm. I've experienced both in my life at different times, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm going for that truer encounter of transcendence that's not divorced from the material, that's, that doesn't require me to zone out or to, you know, get away from the material world so much as recognizing the wonder in the midst of the material, the wonder in the midst of the mundane. Dane. And I think that's one of the beautiful distinctions that you just made is, is, you know, talking about the difference between transcendence and escapism. Mm -hmm. And I think that it seems that this groundedness of the incarnational view of transcendence is what makes that distinction between escapism and then, and tr then truly encountering something transcendent. I think so. And, and you know, the, the chapter that comes right after the chapter on transcendence is a chapter on representational art and delighting in God's presence and thinking about how, just, just thinking about this, this paradox of an almighty king and ruler beyond the heavens who also promises to be with his people, who fully God yet fully man, and that mystery for me is so sustaining <laughs> that I don't want to figure it out. I want to leave that space for it because it feels so satisfying, so safe uh, in so many ways to be loved by a God who is beyond and yet who came to be with us, that there is no part of my reality that he has not entered into. And yet he calls me to be part of something that is so much bigger than just me or just this material world as well. That both and is, is so satisfying and so life-giving for me. I love it. Well, Elissa, thank you so much for spending this time with me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm a fan of your work, and I'm really honored that you took the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Dr. Whitebroke's book or to join the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. If you're inspired by the content of this podcast and want to support its production, please consider becoming a monthly patron or subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by Somewhere at Sea. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.